Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. As you heard in our news, deadly violence in Kiev and Bangkok mar the outlook for emerging markets, and it appears 24 people are dead. The worst violence for weeks, turning the center of the capital, Kiev, into a virtual war zone. More from reporter Bridget Kendall in just a moment. In business news, a mega merger hits Wall Street as activists buys Forest Labs for some $25 billion. And a slew of IPOs emerge, including the maker of Candy Crush, a King Digital Entertainment. In markets in Asia, we see some caution now coming back in with the Nikkei down about 1%. In Seoul, the Kospi is also off a little bit less than that, down five points, about a third of a percent. And in Australia, the ASX 200 is higher, up about uh, one half of 1%. The dollar yen now 102.27, the euro at 1.376 US dollars, the pound 12 Hong Kong dollars and 93 cents. Well, much of our discussion this morning will focus on Tokyo, where the Bank of Japan went supersonic yesterday, extending a couple of lending programs that, in effect, doubled QE in the country, or at least extended it out for double the length of time. Marcel Tillion, a Japan economist at Capital Economics, will be with us, and also Paul Schulte, CEO of Schulte Research. And so we'll have that discussion. We'll also be talking to Michael Kurtz, Chief Asia Equity Strategist at Nomura Securities, about the latest trends in the markets. But first, let's take a look at these top stories in the news this morning. At least four people have been killed in Thailand in clashes between riot police and anti-government protesters. A policeman and three protesters died. We get more from the BBC's Jonathan Head. After weeks of retreating, the Thai police pushed forward today. The police fired tear gas and beat the protesters back with batons. Then this... A grenade thudded against a police riot shield. An officer tried to kick it away, but too late. Four policemen were injured. One lost his leg. After that, the police fired back with live rounds. I saw medics racing past, carrying the injured, some with serious gunshot wounds. After several hours, the police agreed to withdraw. And also in Ukraine, forces there have started an operation to clear the Kiev square that has been occupied by thousands of protesters. At least 20 people died in this latest day, the bloodiest of the standoff. More from Bridget Kendall. A new and deadly phase in the fight for Ukraine's future. Protesters lobbying rocks and Molotov cocktails. The police retaliating with rubber bullets, stun grenades and reportedly live ammunition. The worst violence for weeks, turning the centre of the capital, Kiev, into a virtual war zone. The clashes lasted for hours and on both sides there have been deaths and dozens reported injured. Unrest has paralysed the centre of Kiev for months, ever since President Yanukovych rejected a far-reaching trade deal with the EU in favour of closer ties with Russia. 
Some movement may be forthcoming later this morning, our time. Opposition leader Vitaly Klitschko, a former boxing champion, has arrived at President Viktor Yanukovych's office for unscheduled talks. That's according to Mr. Klitschko's spokeswoman, Oksana Zinoviva, via Twitter. So we'll be watching that story for you. Stay tuned to our news. In business and market action on Wall Street, most stocks were higher for the day. The big merger that we mentioned in our headline fueled optimism, even though there was some bad news on the economic front. A gauge of home builder confidence dropped by the most on record in the month of February, perhaps weather related, but it also dropped out west where the weather was not so much a factor. Uh, the S&P 500 was up not 0.1% at 1840. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 23 points at 16,130. Professor John Taylor at Stanford University says the U.S. economy is working well enough now to get off life support. He would taper the Fed bond buying even faster than is currently planned. After five years after the uh, crisis, uh, that uh, there's many of the financial markets uh, are really functioning quite well. Um, the American economy, if anything, is being not doing as well because of these very unusual actions. So I think it's it's time to get back to the thing that we've seen has worked so well for so many years. Professor Taylor was asked if the so-called forward guidance of the Fed, that of promising to keep interest rates low for a long period of time, is now confusing. The way it has been uh, used, I think it has, because it's changed so many times at the Fed. Originally it was a year that it was the unemployment rate, Six and a half. Now they're saying, well, it's longer than the unemployment rate. So as you keep changing it, I think it is confusing. I think the idea that the central bank is trying to be clear about its future intentions is good. I think that's transparency. But when you keep changing it, it is confusing. Bonds rose. The yield on the 10-year Treasury dropped four basis points to 2.71%, the lowest in a week. In corporate news, the generic drug maker activist has agreed to buy Forest Labs for about $25 billion. It's a deal that will turn activists into a developer of brand name drugs. Forest investors will get cash and stock valued at $89.48 a share. Both companies rose in the latest trading. Forest Labs up 28%. Well, let's say good morning now to Michael Kurtz, the chief Asia equity strategist at Nomura here in Hong Kong. Michael, good morning. Morning, Brian. How do you see the overall environment at the moment? Well, still a lot of blind spots out there, I'm afraid. Um, You're right to flag uh, the weather issues in the U.S. as a potential reason for the iffy data that we're getting out of there. And and I think we're going to need to wait until at least the February numbers coming out in March, if not even the March numbers that come out in April to get more of a extrapolatable trend. We've also got uncertainties in China and Japan. China mostly attributable simply to the timing of the Lunar New Year holiday and the way that that distorts the January numbers. And Japan, as we're now you know, coming into the sort of final approach to the increase in the consumption tax in April, that leaves a lot of uh, sort of unanswered questions for markets that are simply going to have to wait patiently for data or for the actual outcomes in March, April, before we can really begin to get a handhold again. Did the loan data that we saw out over the weekend on China and the trade data um, from a week or so ago, did that encourage you about growth in China? Well, I'm encouraged by the trade data. 
Um, some of that probably can be explained away as false invoicing in order to facilitate some capital inflows by Chinese businesses who need to, to go elsewhere for capital. Uh, the loan numbers, though, I think we have to take them in the context of a typical seasonal beginning-of-the-year pattern where borrowers would like to lock in as much of their full-year capital budgeting as they can, never knowing in China whether there might be some kind of a bigger crackdown on credit sometime in the middle of the year. And lenders, of course, since they know they're ultimately lending against some sort of a quota, would rather get that money out there earning interest for them the whole year rather than, say, half of the year for half of that money. And so you get a big feeding frenzy every January and February uh, of, of loan, uh, lending and borrowing that often uh, peters itself out or, or becomes a target for uh, you know, regulatory breaking and dampening sometime around March or April. Is China, because it's kind of closed off in a sense, is it um, also closed off from the effects of tapering? Oh, I think not at all. Um, you know, the, the issue with tapering is that the supply of dollars in the global economy uh, should be, uh, you know, coming down, certainly slowing down and then actually coming down over the next 12 to 24 months. And that's an issue for the PBOC, who had the sort of uh, high-quality problem in recent years of having to vacuum up those dollars in order to maintain a fairly uh, stable and targeted yuan dollar exchange rate. Now that there is the prospect of fewer dollars floating around the global economy, the PBOC is not going to be absorbing as much of that dollar liquidity, and therefore its own domestic money supply management will be impacted uh, via the mechanism of less domestic money creation. That will force them then to employ some of the sterilization instruments in reverse. In other words, they use these instruments to take money out of circulation over the past several years. They may have to reverse them to start putting some liquidity into circulation or face the kind of interbank and credit inadvertent tightenings that we saw, for example, during June, July last year. Whoa, 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 man. I'll tell you, that uh, uh, that's a pretty heavy uh, bit of comments there for the average uh, listener. Uh, in reverse, uh, these kind of sterilization measures, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's tough for a general interest program. Let me ask you this. Do the Hong Kong banks suffer in any way because of, of tapering and uh, because of what may or may not be happening with shadow banking in China? Well, there are two issues there. Tapering, I think, will create similar sorts of decelerating pressures for money supply in Hong Kong. And, of course, the Hong Kong banks in particular have an additional burden to, to carry, which is they're heavily exposed to the property market uh, in Hong Kong, both through mortgage lending as well as through lending to the developers. And for that matter, uh, loans to small and medium-sized enterprises in Hong Kong that are often uh, collateralized with property. And so the Hong Kong banking system will, I think, be facing some strain. I don't mean to imply a, a mortal threat of any kind, but certainly strains as the Fed proceeds with uh, tapering and as Treasury yields presumably continue to rise. Yeah, still trying to get my head around uh, sterilization measures in reverse. Uh, reverse repos then, uh, I guess, right? Um, that, that's right. And I don't mean to sound too apocalyptic, Brian, because one thing to keep in mind is that the PBOC has more than two trillion U.S. dollars, something in the neighborhood of uh, 20 to 25 percent of Chinese GDP 
in circulation of these instruments. And so there's a lot of liquidity that they have uh, to inject uh, at their disposal should conditions merit it. Okay. And therefore, the big uh, issue is really how tight or how loose do they want domestic liquidity to be. And you could make the case that with financial reforms proceeding and some attempt to clean up the excesses in the non-bank financial intermediary space in China, that they actually would prefer conditions to get a bit tighter as we head into the year. Okay, let's talk about something a little easier to understand in terms of overall uh, sentiment. Um, we've had a lot of mergers lately, and also we're seeing a lot of IPOs. Uh, do you read those as positive or something else? Oh, I think very much positive. We're, we're clearly coming uh, out of the era during the crisis when uh, lots of cash on the corporate balance sheet was seen as a positive. Um, investors were actually willing to pay higher valuations during 2007 through 2012 on companies that didn't use their cash but simply held it there as a kind of an insurance policy against an uncertain future. Now we're seeing companies that are cash-heavy beginning to underperform the market. And that sort of market pressure is forcing managers to actually use the balance sheet, put that cash to work. Um, Mergers and acquisitions is one way to do it. Uh, Special dividends or share buybacks is another way. And in many cases, we think you're going to start to see a pickup in capital expenditure. But what's what's useful here is that that risk-averse behavior where corporates simply sat on a fat but fallow balance sheet uh, is giving way now to more opportunistic behavior in the market. And yeah. I think that's absolutely encouraging. That's great. Yeah, that should be very good. Uh, also, um, we've had earnings, um, and earnings in the States have been, uh, on balance, pretty darn good. Uh, we've, we've seen some earnings out here in Hong Kong now. We had uh, Bank of uh, East Asia yesterday and seemed uh, pretty good. Uh, what are your projections in just the last question and maybe over the next 30 or 40 seconds. So what are you expecting from earnings from these local companies? Yeah, um, the the earnings picture really is critical here because the multiple expansion argument, the sort of macro risk compression argument in favor of equities is very definitely losing headroom. In other words, increasingly the upside proposition for stocks has to come from their ability to generate earnings rather than just expecting the PE multiples to to get bigger. But in that regard, this has been a a fairly encouraging result season. Many markets in the region are beating Singapore, Taiwan, India coming in very strong despite a uh, a relatively weak GDP story. Uh, Here in Hong Kong, I'm optimistic, albeit I think this particular economy is probably going to look comparatively lackluster uh, next to, say, the more cyclical and more externally oriented economies like Korea or Taiwan, where the potential for uh, a strong cyclical pickup looks better. Okay, Michael, uh, thank you very much. I think I had too many glasses of wine yesterday. You were quite technical today. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this uh, interview to see what pearls of wisdom I can draw from it. But Michael, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Michael Kurtz, Chief Asia Equity Strategist at Nomura. I'm not joking. My head was spinning with macro risk compression and all these other terms. Anyway, you can go to our website, go into the archive, go in and find Money for Nothing at rthk.hk, and you can listen back to these interviews and um, you know get a slightly clearer picture of exactly where these bright analysts that we bring on are going. <laughs> Good morning to you. It's 18 minutes after 8 o'clock, and this is Money for Nothing. We take a look at the tough stories in business and finance. 
And I want to welcome two guests to the program now, Marcel Tillion, Japan economist at Capital Economics. He joins us on the phone uh, from Singapore. And Paul Schulte, CEO and chairman of Schulte Research International. Gentlemen, uh, good morning to you. We wanted to talk uh, in kind of a longer discussion about Japan. A huge move yesterday by the Bank of Japan announcing that it would extend a couple of uh, lending programs by one year. Uh, that essentially doubles the size or at least the um, the period that these uh, that these programs will be in, and it sent the yen lower against the U.S. dollar and Tokyo stocks a lot higher, but we see a little bit of normalization happening today. So, Marcel, uh, let me go to you first. Um, was this a somewhat surprising move yesterday or something you expected? No, we, we actually had expected that they would extend these um, programs. We were rather surprised by the strong market reaction because we think this is uh, more of a symbolic move it doesn't necessarily change the, the underlying economics here. Liquidity is, is plentiful in, in Japan, so this uh, doesn't really help the, the banks all that much. But it is a whole lot more QE in the end, isn't it? Well, if you look at the the figures that the Bank of Japan published uh, for, for this one lending facility, it's an increase by, uh, I think, $3.5 trillion. And the other one, they said that it could reach uh, $30 trillion if, if fully utilized which is, I guess, uh, currently the loans outstanding under these facilities are about $10 trillion. So if we add this up, it's about another $20 trillion, which is, in, in the big scheme of things, uh, if you think that the, the BOJ is expanding its, its monetary base by uh, around $130, $140 trillion over the, next, uh, over the course of the current QE program, is actually not that much. And it, of course, it also depends how much the banks will actually really, really take up, because so far uh, the utilization hasn't been that great. One of the things I'm curious about is with the drop in the yen that we've seen, have companies in Japan taken advantage of that, lowered their own prices to get market share, or have they just you know, kept prices the same and, and got a lot higher profits uh, and not gained market share? Uh, well, mostly companies have actually left prices pretty much unchanged, which is actually in, in contrast to previous episodes of, of strong yen depreciation. So I think that's one reason why people may have, have underestimated or may have overestimated the, the gains to competitiveness um, that, that the Japanese companies gain from, from the weekend. Yeah, so in a, in a sense, um, you know, they're not doing what many people thought they would do. Um, Paul Schulte, uh, you, you also have been looking at, uh, at Japan, um, and we had thought we might talk to you a little bit about Tokyo real estate and about fund flows uh, globally. How do you think Japan sets up in this period? Paul, we got to get his mic up, um, please. We've got Paul Schulte in our satellite studio in uh, Admiralty there at uh, uh, Queensway. And, uh, Paul, I don't know if you heard me, but we didn't hear you. So let me go back to uh, uh, do you think that what we saw from the Bank of Japan yesterday, does that in any way change your view about how positive the environment for investing in Japan is? This reinforces my view because what we're seeing is the Bank of Japan knows that you just you can't just create one-off inflation expectations and then sort of sit back. You have to continually reinforce these short-term inflation expectations. And so this move by the Bank of Japan yesterday I think is very uh, symbolically important. And it shows that there is some degree of consensus. You know, th there, are, there, is, there are people in the Bank of Japan who don't want to do this. Most of the people seem to want to do it. 
and so this move yesterday shows that there is, you know, uh, a clear understanding that you have to continue to create short-term expectations, and this is what they're doing. Does this improve conditions for the region generally, or mainly Japan? And how do people in Hong Kong perhaps benefit? Well, the, the, Japan is the third largest economy in the world, and the, the Bank of Japan intends to create a balance sheet which is going to become 50% of GDP. So this is a, a very large move. Uh, there were people who were wondering whether the, the Bank of Japan sort of gets it. Do they understand what they're trying to achieve? And I think yesterday's activity shows that there is, you know, some degree of consensus on, 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 a, on a continuation of pushing and creating inflation. We need inflation in the world or we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. And I, I everybody you, gets that. I know you are, um, you are someone who's uh, very concerned about deflation. We have seen elements of it in, uh, in Europe and the United States, uh, not so much in Asia except for uh, Japan. Will they be successful in getting out of this uh, dis, uh, disinflation or deflation period? Well, they have to. Con well, right now, weirdly, the, the country in the world between the U.S., Europe, and Japan, the country in the world with the highest inflation level is Japan. So this is <laughs> yeah. not exactly ideal. So so far, they are um, on course to deliver you know higher inflation numbers than either the U.S. or the uh, Europe coming through. And we're also seeing falling inflation in the UK uh, for the first time in a long time as well. So, And we're seeing you know, negative numbers on the producer price index for China. So we have you know, far greater deflationary pressure right now. And so I think your, your previous guest you know, talking about you know, tapering, I think that's um, totally inappropriate because right now we have chronic unemployment all over the world and inflation numbers that are approaching zero for most of the world right now. Yeah, Marcel, um, you know, getting back to the question I put to Paul, uh, you're in Singapore, we're in Hong Kong. Uh, do you see the measures that uh, you, you're, you're not quite as positive on what happened yesterday as uh, Paul is, but do you see us in any way benefiting? Marcel? Um, well, I, th I think the, the Japan is obviously boosting uh, domestic demand, so, so you, you might see a little boost here from, from imports. I don't think that uh, financial flows are very relevant. I think to, to Japanese investors are pretty much uh, domestically focused. They don't tend to, to invest much abroad. So I think um, it's mostly a, an import story here. And, and Paul, if financial flows are not that important to Japanese domestic investors, they must be very important to Hong Kong investors. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure I agree at all. Uh, you look at the Japanese banks right now. The Japanese banks are getting very active in Hong Kong and throughout the region on some interesting deals. Uh, and so the capacity of you know, some degree of liquidity, you know, um, um, uh, increase and also some domestic recovery allows the Japanese banks to move out into the region and take up the slack where the European banks who are short of capital are pulling back. So this is clearly the case um, in Japan or in Hong Kong and Singapore and in many parts of the world where Japanese financial institutions are now coming in to fill the breach created by the uh, severe capital shortage among the European banks. Marcel, do you not agree with that? Well, from what I see, I don't think there's any lack of liquidity. I mean, if I look at Singapore, the, the loan growth rates are just extremely high, so I don't think there's, there's any problem with that. 
Okay, Marcel, we don't have the best line with you, so I think I'm going to uh, say thank you and, and let you go, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again. Uh, we're just not hearing uh, uh, your feed as well as we'd like to, so many thanks. Marcel Thilion, who's the Japan economist at Capital Economics on a somewhat bad line, uh, but we still have Paul Schulte with us, and we've still got four or five minutes left. Interesting in tapping your views about uh, why, why tapering um, shouldn't continue. I guess you were commenting uh, uh, also on the, the quote there from Professor Taylor, John Taylor, who's yeah. a real critic of the Fed. He thinks that they should get out faster. Well, uh, the Fed has a legal mandate, uh, which is inflation and unemployment. And uh, the real unemployment rates are, you know, probably closer to 12 or 13 percent because millions of people have left the um, the, the employment roles. Um, and so the real number is much, much higher. It's extremely high for young people. And this is true for the UK. It's true for Europe. Uh, still, we still have very high loan to deposit ratios in Europe. So the deleveraging is still not burned off yet. And Japan is struggling to create inflation. And China has, you know, negative numbers on the PPI for, you know, two years in a row. And so, and I think also we need to bear in mind that the emerging world credit cycle is over. That's one of my very big themes that I'm quite uh, adamant about. I think Singapore is in deep trouble. I don't agree at all with the credit numbers. Uh, look at the property stocks in Singapore have been decimated. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at some pretty serious problems here. And so t talking about uh, tapering as sort of a necessary, you know, condition here is, to me, a little bit cavalier. Are you surprised that the U.S. markets have held up where we've seen almost two months now of, um, on balance, negative data, economic data? And if you have tapering at the same time that your economy seems to be sputtering a little bit, it does seem almost counterintuitive that Wall Street would be almost back to all-time highs. Well, th that's precisely because Janet Yellen has basically <laughs> has basically said, hey, we're not tapering anywhere near as fast as you guys think. And that's what saved the markets precisely because I think, I think you know, Janet Yellen gets it. The people at the Fed get it. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I'm a little more um, at ease about things. <clears throat> okay, let's talk a little bit about Hong Kong. We've had a rough start to the year. Um, Actually, most markets are down year to date. Um, I think we're down about uh, three to five percent, something like that. Uh, what are the conditions, do you think, for Hong Kong with tapering continue? Money just gets sucked out or we're OK? Well, I think that Hong Kong, you know, is part it is glued to the emerging you know, world conditions. And uh, the Far East, I think, is problematic in that, you know, countries like uh, Thailand, countries like, um, you know, Korea, uh, countries like, um, you know, Indonesia, to some extent, are all reaching their um, the end of their credit cycle. And certainly this is true in Singapore as well. And when that happens, you just run out of, of domestic savings to, to turn into loans. And, and, and this is just part of the credit cycle. And so Hong Kong cannot consider, consider itself exempt from that, you know, phenomenon. And so, uh, you know, Hong Kong... Uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned because uh, the Hong Kong, you know, the, the cost structure of Hong Kong is, you know, very, very high indeed relative to, you know, increasing headwinds um, as central banks try to create inflation, as the uh, Asia slows down given the uh, exhaustion of the credit cycle. And thirdly, you know, the continuing ongoing crackdown in China. Well, it sounds like from what you're saying, we could use a little deflation, make us more competitive. Um, indeed. I think that's a very good point. I think Hong Kong will suffer bouts of deflation this year. I think that's a great point. I think it needs to. I think retail rents are out of control, that they're two times higher than the number two city in the world, which is London. 
Uh, and so Hong Kong's on average is around three times higher than the average of the next six cities. This is crazy. So right? would you be quite supportive of the government measures on property, the buyer stamp duty and uh, the special stamp duty? Uh, I think that a, a, a time of, of cooling off is necessary. And I think the government has got to come in and do stuff that, that the U.K. government is doing. They have to support technological innovation, and they're not doing that. OK, just a final question, 30 seconds or so. What's your best investment idea at the moment? My best investment idea right now, short term, is um, what, what I've published, and that's basically uh, that there is a window of opportunity here. The yield curve is flattening in the U.S., that there's a, a window of opportunity for some uh, property stocks, uh, Wing Tai in Singapore, uh, Fudosan in Japan, uh, Swire in Hong Kong, and I think that's a trade. I think that okay. lasts for a month or so. Okay. Thanks very much, Paul. Uh, enjoy having you on the program, and we'll talk again. Thank you. Paul Schulte, CEO and Chairman, Schulte Research International here in Hong Kong. Markets are sputtering a little bit today, but we've had some smart gains of late, although Australia is higher, up 21 points at 54.23. Gold now priced at $1,324.70, been rallying over this year. Weather today, cold, cloudy, with a few rain patches at first. Maximum temperature, just 11. Back chat next, right after the news. The news with Etienne Lamy Smith. Violent clashes erupted in Ukraine when police tried to clear thousands of anti-government protesters from their camp in central Kiev. Here's more from the BBC's David Stern. We're seeing uh, petrol bombs, we're seeing stun grenades, um, both sides using any number of bits of violence. Right now it's focused in, in, uh, in uh, Independence Square, but the protesters say that even if they are driven from the square, sta- they say they will stand firm, but if they are driven, the fight will continue. And the question is, will it move then into western Ukraine, which is a uh, bastion of the anti-government movement, or could it even move into eastern Ukraine, where Mr. Yanukovych enjoys most of his support? Eighteen people have reportedly been killed in the violence so far. More trouble is expected in Thailand today as authorities there vow to continue clearing anti-government protester camps. 